The following sermon is by our senior pastor, Grant Castleberry of Capital Community Church, located in Raleigh, North Carolina. Capital Community Church is a people awakened to a holy God. If you are searching for a new church home, or from out of town looking for a church to worship with, or simply seeking for answers, please join us for worship at 9 o'clock a.m. every Sunday morning. If you have any questions, please email us at info at capitalcommunitychurch.com. We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. Thank you, worship team. And welcome to Friend Day. In Texas, you call, call your closest friends your buddies. We start, I thought about calling this Buddy Day, but that didn't have the, the same ring to it. So it's Friend Day. Welcome. We're glad you're here, here at Capitol. Uh, we have people from all sorts of different denominational backgrounds and traditions and uh, Baptists, Anglicans, Presbyterians, uh, but what unites us together is the Bible, and we hold to the inerrant Word of God, the Scriptures. We believe that the Word of God is living and active, and so every week what we do is we teach the Bible because we want to get you into the text and we believe that God's word then changes your life as you see Christ in his word. And then the Holy Spirit does his work in and through the word. So what I want you to do is grab your Bible. I want you to grab a Bible. We have some out in the foyer if you didn't bring a Bible. Uh, also have a note-taking outline. If you're a guest with us, you might want to grab one because there's going to be a lot of cross-references that I'm going to point you to uh, this morning. But I want you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. It's in the New Testament, the fourth gospel, fifth chapter. And for context, for those of you who are picking up with us, essentially Jesus is on trial in the temple. He's surrounded by hundreds, if not thousands of people, and they're angry. They want to kill him. And they're asking Jesus essentially to give a defense for himself. And the reason why is because Jesus uh, had come into town for an unnamed feast, and he had gone to the pool of Bethesda where a lot of invalids and other people who uh, needed healing were waiting. And on the Sabbath day, uh, he, he went to a man who'd been lame for 38 years, and he healed him. He said, take up uh, your pallet and walk. And he did. And there was a huge uproar about this because it was the Sabbath. And later on in the temple, a confrontation happens. And this is the confrontation in John chapter 5. And what's interesting, if you look at verse 17, you see Jesus' defense of himself, his justification for healing this man. Look at verse 17. Jesus answered them. He says, my father is working until now, and I am working. The rabbis taught that the father worked on the Sabbath day, even though everybody else rested. They said the father works. So what Jesus is saying here is I also work. I am on the same level as the father. I am the son of God. I am divine. And at this, uh, they knew exactly what he meant. Look at verse 18. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, that's in, in their terms, John's saying, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. I don't know where you are this morning in your consideration of who Jesus is, but this is an important reality that we all have to face. 
that Jesus claimed to be God. He didn't just claim to be uh, a moral example, a good teacher, a friend of the poor, a friend of sinners. He claimed to be God. And so if we are to reckon with Jesus, we have to reckon with him on his own terms. He claimed to be divine. And what follows, beginning in verses 19 all the way through verse 29, is probably the most explicit statement of Jesus' divinity in the entire New Testament. I mean, their mouths are agape that he's claiming to be God. Do you think Jesus draws back at that? No. He goes for the gauntlet. And look what he says uh, over and over and over again. It's It's a claim to divinity. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. In other words, uh, the son and the father have one will. There's one divine will. Uh, Then he says, verse 20, for the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. That's divine communion. They share this divine communion together. And then he says, in greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. By works, he's talking about miracles. He's saying, I have divine, the power to do divine miracles. And then he says, verse 21, for as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. So he is the, the, the divine power to impart life. And then he just keeps ramping it up. He says, for the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, so that on the last day, The Son will be the one judging on behalf of the Father. And and then, as if that wasn't enough, he says, verse 23, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. In other words, you're going to worship me. That's what the honoring means. Can you imagine what these Jews would have thought? And Jesus says, oh, by the way, uh, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the, fa- the Father who sent him. And truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Verses 25 to 29, Jesus extrapolates and explains this power he has to give divine life and this authority he has to execute judgment on the last day, and we've covered that in the previous few weeks. So if you're curious about those details, make sure and go listen to those messages. But here we are in verse 30, okay? So 30, this is where we're picking up this morning. 30 is a transition, and you can see the transition immediately because Jesus starts speaking in the first person. Notice that first word, I. I can do nothing on my own. Previously, he was referring to himself in the third person, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Son, over and over again. He was speaking in the third person. Here, it's the first person. And Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. It's basically a restatement of everything that he's said previously, all these divine statements he's made. But notice that first clause and how profound that is. He says, I can do nothing on my own. 
In other words, every single thing that the Lord Jesus did, he did according to the divine will of the Father. Every single thing in his life and ministry. Every single thing he said was according to the Father's will. Everything. Because he and the Father had the same will. It's, it's a restatement of deity. And, and what Jesus is going to start doing is he's going to start giving testimony. In other words, I've given these divine statements, and now I'm going to prove it to you. Look at verse 31. This is a fascinating statement. Jesus says, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. And you might ask, Jesus, haven't you just said that you are God, that you're divine? How can you then say, if you alone bear testimony about yourself, that it's not true? After all, in John chapter 8, you keep reading, uh, John eight fourteen, Jesus says, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I come from, came from and where I am going. In Revelation 3.14, Jesus describes himself as the faithful and true witness. So why does Jesus say, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true? Remember the context. What's the context? He's on trial. He's surrounded by hundreds and thousands of people that are asking him to prove his deity. And Jesus knew that most of them did not believe him. Furthermore, in a Jewish court of law, how many witnesses did it take to prove something? More than one witness, two or three witnesses. The same in a Roman court of law. Uh, Deuteronomy 19.15 says, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime. So you could probably understand this statement better reading, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not admitted. So I know that you just, if I claim to be God as I have, I know that you don't receive my testimony. So Jesus now has set things up for the rest of this discourse, the rest of this uh, speech he's given in the temple all the way through the rest of the chapter. And what he's going to do in the rest of the chapter is he's going to introduce four witnesses. Four witnesses. Uh, the first one is the most important, and that's God the Father. Look at verse 32. He says, there is another who bears witness about me, and I know the testimony that he bears about me is true. Uh, this is a somewhat cryptic way to refer to God the Father. Probably at this point, uh, most of his hearers would not know who he's referring to, but he does come back and refer to the Father again in verse 37. We'll, we'll see this uh, next week. He says, And the Father who sent me has borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. But Jesus is saying here, is that the Father constantly bears witness in and through Him. How, you might ask. Is He talking about uh, the baptism? Do you remember when Jesus was baptized, what happened? Uh, John put Him underneath the water, and immediately the Holy Spirit came down in the form of a dove, and there was a voice from heaven, remember? And the voice said, "'This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased.'" Is that what Jesus is talking about here? 
Possibly, but I don't think so, because I think only Jesus and John the Baptist heard that voice. What I think Jesus is talking about is God the Father's testimony in and through the works and the words of Jesus Christ, and the Father's testimony through the other three examples that Jesus is going to give. The other three examples are John the Baptist, the works of Christ, and the Holy Scriptures themselves, that God the Father bears witness through these other three means. So, verse 33 is when Jesus picks up John the Baptist. Look at verse 33. He says, you sent to John, and he is born witness to the truth. Now, this is a historical fact in John 119. The Pharisees had sent a delegation to John the Baptist, and they basically asked him, who are you? Are you Elijah the prophet? Uh, who are you that you're, that you're bearing this testimony? And John the Baptist had said in verse 23, he says, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. That's a quote from Isaiah chapter 40. Basically, John the Baptist said, I'm simply uh, a voice out here in the wilderness, and I'm preparing the way for the Messiah to come. I'm preparing the way for the Lord to come. That's, that's the purpose of my ministry. And then Jesus says, verse 34, look at verse 34, not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so you will be saved. Now, stay with me. What Jesus means here is that he actually doesn't need the testimony of John the Baptist because he is the testimony of the Father. Remember, he's heard the testimony of the Father over and over again. He's experienced the testimony of the Father. So if he's got the testimony of the Father, he doesn't need the testimony of John the Baptist to validate his ministry personally. But he says, you need the, the testimony of John the Baptist. You need to listen to what John the Baptist said. And why does he say that? Why does he say that they needed to hear the ministry of John the Baptist, the witness of John the Baptist? Look at verse 34. It's a purpose statement. So that you will be saved. You need to listen to him so that you will be saved. Then verse 35, such a really fascinating verse, an interesting way to describe John the Baptist. He was a burning and shining lamp and you were willing to rejoice a little while in his light. Now, he describes John the Baptist as a lamp. You remember, Jesus describes himself, and John describes him as the light of the world. That's how John introduces the gospel. He says, Jesus is the true light, which gives light to everyone, and he was coming into the world. The word light is the Greek word phos, where we get our English word phosphorus, uh, but that's not how Jesus describes John the Baptist. He describes John the Baptist as a luknos, a lamp, and a lamp must be lit by another source of light, okay? So a lamp doesn't have light in itself. A lamp burns with the flame that is given it to itself by another, and so John the Baptist is a lamp whose 
flame is given to him by God. And by the way, we are all supposed to be lamps. Jesus said, Matthew 5, 15, uh, nor do people light a lamp and put it, under, put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. And we are all to let our lamps shine if we're in Christ, if we're believers. Jesus says, John was a lamp, and not just a lamp. He says he was a burning, shining lamp. And that adjective burning describes the sincerity of his ministry, that he was being consumed with passion and zeal for this work that God had given him to, to bear witness about who Jesus is. And, and he ended, ended up ultimately giving his life uh, for this cause. And then that word shining refers to the scope of his ministry, that he shone forth for a little while. And everybody, Jesus says, was willing to rejoice for a while in his life, uh, in his light, that he had this marvelous uh, ministry that people flocked to, uh, like moth to a flame. But it was more of a uh, spectacle than it was sincere excitement. People uh, went out to the wilderness to see this thing that everybody was talking about, this burning and shining lamp. So this morning, what I want to do is I want to focus with you on this burning and shining lamp. Who was this man, John the Baptist? And why does Jesus say that his witness is so important in order that the people that hear him might be saved? You still with me? That was the introduction. <laughs> John the Baptist had been prophesied over 400 years before in Malachi. The prophet Malachi, if you read the Old Testament, it ends, the very last verses in the Old Testament are a prophecy about John the Baptist. Malachi says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elijah. You remember he was born to two elderly parents named Elizabeth and Zacharias. Uh, they couldn't conceive a child, and one day Zacharias was uh, doing his responsibilities and duties in the temple, and he saw an angel, and the angel said to Zacharias, this is Luke 1.15, he says, you will have a son, you will have a child, this will be a miracle baby, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. So it's not that he's really Elijah coming back, reincarnate. We don't believe in reincarnation, but he has the spiritual power of Elijah. He says to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to uh, um, the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Jesus says that he was the greatest and the last of the Old Testament prophets. That's, a, that's Matthew eleven eleven. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there is none greater than John the Baptist. He had the anointing of the spirit of Elijah. Jesus said in Matthew eleven fourteen, just a few verses later, he says, if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. 
After he was raised by his parents, he went and lived in the wilderness near the Dead Sea. Matthew records in Matthew 3, 4, he says, Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Can you imagine living on locusts and wild honey? I was thinking about that this morning, eating locusts. You know, you see those survivor shows, and, and they're picking up the, the squiggly worms and, you know, killing the rabbits and, and cooking them over a fire. He, he was out there eating locusts and honey, and what was he wearing? These leather garments with a leather belt? This guy is a man's man, right? I, I just want you, I, I want you to get a picture of this, this man. He, this, this guy is not a beta male modeling for J. Crew. <laughs> Th- this guy is a punch-you-in-the-mouth prophet. Jesus says he's the last of the Old Testament prophets. And he starts preaching, and he gains just this mass popularity. Uh, Mark records, this is Mark 1.5, he says, all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the Jordan River. So everybody's going out to him. Everybody's talking about him. Everybody's interested in him. Everybody's saying, hey, have you heard, have you gone out uh, to the river and, and, and heard the prophet? Uh, no, should I? Yeah. He's a little crazy, but you'll be interested in his message. Everybody's having these types of conversations, and everybody's going out to hear this man preach. And one day, guess who shows up to see John the Baptist? The Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ shows up. And, and John the Baptist is stunned. And the Lord Jesus comes up and says, I want you to baptize me. And he says, may it never be, Lord. You should be the one who baptizes me. And Jesus said, no, no. You baptize me to fulfill all righteousness. So he baptizes uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, and, and the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove comes down, as we talked about earlier. And then Jesus goes out in the wilderness to, uh, to be tempted by Satan. Afterwards, uh, a few months later, John the Baptist traveled north to the region of Perea. Uh, there was a leader there named Herod Antipas. He was a very immoral individual. Uh, he took his brother Philip's wife named Herodias, and uh, he took her to be his wife, and John the Baptist called him out on it. And for that, he had John the Baptist arrested. And while John the Baptist was sitting in prison, Herod had a big party. And um, his now wife's uh, daughter came out and danced in a very provocative, sensual way and uh, gathered the praise of all the men at the party. And Herod said, I'll grant you basically anything in the kingdom up to half my kingdom. And uh, her mother Herodias came and told her, she said, I want you to ask for John the Baptist's head on a platter. So she did. And that's how John the Baptist's life ended. Right in that prison of Herod. He was a humble man. He was a man consumed with his mission. Uh, He didn't care about his own name. He didn't care about his uh, prestige. He didn't care about his his legacy. Uh, He didn't care about money. 
Uh, you, you couldn't buy him off. You couldn't intimidate him. He was, in the words of our world, he was a dangerous man. You couldn't threaten him. He said in, in John 3.30, he said, he must increase, talking about Christ, but I must decrease. He was humble. He, he was about Christ. That's how we should be as a believer. You can't buy me off with money. My wealth is in the kingdom of God. I've sacrificed it all to follow Christ. Take my life. My life is hidden with him in heaven. That was John the Baptist's mindset. So Jesus said, remember, that he says, I refer to you to the witness of John the Baptist so that you may be saved. That's why Jesus referenced John the Baptist. So my question to you is this morning, what was his witness? What was John the Baptist's message? What did he say? Let me give you three quick words to define his message, okay? First, judgment. John the Baptist preached a message of judgment. I want you to turn to Luke chapter 3. Just the next book to your left. Chapter 3. Verse 7. Look at verse 7. Listen to this. This, this, is, this is amazing. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warn you to flee from the wrath to come? You can almost hear the New York Times tone police rushing out to censor John the Baptist. I don't think his messages would stay on Spotify very long. That's a joke. He's basically saying, you're children of Satan. You get that? You brood of vipers? Who's the serpent? Satan. He's saying, you're, you're, you're children of the devil. You represent the devil's religion, and God's wrath is coming on the devil's religion right now. Look down at verse 9. Skip down to verse 9. He says, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. He, he's pronouncing judgment on the Jewish establishment of the day, all the religion of the Pharisees and the scribes. He's saying the axe is at the root of the tree right now. It's about to be chopped down because the Pharisees and scribes had developed a religion that was about their honor and not God's honor. All these extraneous rules about not being able to even carry something the size of a fig on the Sabbath day about women not being able to look in a mirror on the Sabbath day. Nothing about the worship of God. And John the Baptist says, judgment is coming. The ax is already at the root of the tree. And his prophecy came to pass. 35 years later, what happens? The emperor Titus comes in, 
lays the temple down, lays the walls of Jerusalem down. The Jews scurried all the way to Masada. And remember, the Romans came all the way to Masada, built up the ramp. Even the Jews there ultimately died. Judgment came on all of the Jewish religion, that false religion. And friends, judgment day is coming one day or another for every single false religion that man sets up. Every single false religion. And here's the thing. The Judaism of the day was a false religion set up in the name of who? God. Oh, well, we, we go to a church that, that worships God. Yeah, but not through Jesus Christ. They say everybody gets in by basically being a good person. You just have to be a moral person, and then God's love wins out in the end. Oh, really? What about sin? How is that dealt with? Or we go to a church, and we don't believe everybody gets in, but if you're good enough and you work hard enough, then you'll be meritorious enough that St. That Peter will let you in at the gate. Oh, really? What about Romans 3.10? There's none who does good. No one seeks after God. What about Romans 3.23? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There, there's lots of false religion out there that masquerades in the name of God. But it's not true religion, and ultimately, the ax is at the root of the tree. And the Lord Jesus will judge. Just read the first few chapters of Revelation. All these churches. And Jesus says, look, if you don't reform, judgment's coming. So don't stay in a dead church that practices false religion. Get to a church that teaches the Bible from cover to cover and believes every single word. So you can imagine what the crowds thought at Jesus' message. Uh, look at verse 310. Uh, look what they said. And the crowds asked John the Baptist, what then shall we do? What do we do then? If you're saying that the, the whole religious system of the day is judged, it's dead, what do we do? Uh, keep your finger here, but I, we're going to turn right back to, to Luke 3, but I want you to turn over to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. And I want you to see what the essence of John the Baptist's message then was to the crowds. Look at verse 2 of chapter 3. John the Baptist, this is his, notice there's parentheses around the entire verse. This was essentially a summation of his message in a nutshell. It was repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was his message. Repent, 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 repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That word repent is the Greek word metanoia. You hear it's a compound word meta, which means change, where we get our English word metamorphosis. Uh, noea is the Greek word for mind. It meant transform your mind, change your mind about your life. It's uh, the picture of a ship going one way, and turning around and headed the opposite direction. It's going the exact opposite way. 
It's being on the I-10 and headed to California, getting on the U-turn and getting back on I-10, going to Florida. Okay? That's what he's talking about. It's a complete 180-degree turn. Uh, What John the Baptist is talking about is you have to come to the reality of the fact that you are a sinner, that you have sinned, and you have to turn from that sin. Now turn back to Luke chapter 3 and look at John the Baptist's response to the crowds. Uh, it's, it, this is how he's defining repentance. This is how he's explaining to them repentance. Look at verse 11. He answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Okay, there's tax collectors there listening to John the Baptist. He says, tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Uh, There were Roman soldiers there, and the soldiers also asked him, "And, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and by and be content with your wages." In other words, repent. Stop doing the sin that you are doing, confess it, and turn the complete opposite direction. Confess your fornications, your adulteries, your drunkenness, your coveting, your hate, your theft. You confess it all and you turn the opposite direction. Have any of y'all ever seen uh, Father Brown, the, the mystery? mystery shows or read the the Chesterton Father Brown novels. Basically, I I love Father Brown, even though uh, he's a Roman Catholic priest, but I I love it because at the very end, he always catches the the criminal, uh, the perpetrator, and the perpetrator normally is about to get away, and he has an opportunity to get away. And Father Brown says, yeah, you could get away, but what about your soul? You need to repent. You need to confess. You need to repent and come to the reality with your sin. And that's, I I love that because that's a far cry from the message that our culture is shouting at everyone today, even what some pulpits are shouting at people today. Uh, The message of today is that you need to think better about yourself, that you need to think more highly of yourself than you already do, that you need to think positively, that the problem is in your mind, that you don't have enough self-esteem, you think too lowly of yourself, that you need to love yourself more. Interestingly, Paul said that in the last days, men will be lovers of self. Our world says, minimize your sin, excuse your sin, repress your sin, or indulge your sin. John the Baptist said, repent of your sin. Repent of your sin. Turn from your sin. Luther said that the Christian life is a continual act of repentance. So this message was a message of moral reform, of turning from your sin, of repentance. This was a message preparing the way for the Lord. John the Baptist was a forerunner, the one running in front of Christ, preparing the way for the Lord. So I want to ask you, did this message of repentance save his hearers? Did this message of moral reform save his hearers? Not alone. 
Not yet. He was preparing the way for Jesus' message and for his later message. It was bringing people face to face with the reality of their sin so that when Jesus came, they would realize that they needed a sin bearer, that they needed atonement for their sin. Here's what's fascinating about John the Baptist's ministry. After he baptizes the Lord Jesus Christ, a third element is added to his message. I want you to turn now back to the Gospel of John, and I want you to see the third word, behold. So we've seen judgment, repentance, and now third and finally, behold. So do you remember, he, he baptized the Lord Jesus in the Jordan River. Jesus went out into the wilderness, and then Jesus comes back from the wilderness, and John the Baptist sees him, and that's verse 29 of John chapter 1. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You see this third element that's added to his message? That word, behold, it's exclamatory, it's dramatic. He's saying, Look! To his disciples, to, to the people that are there, he says, look, behold, gaze, set your eyes, look who's coming. Behold, it's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God, his hearers, they, they were Jews, they would have immediately referenced one of two things. Uh, one, do you remember the suffering servant from Isaiah chapter 53? Uh, I'll just read you Isaiah 53, 5. Isaiah said, referring to this future lamb, uh, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. They also would have thought about the Passover lamb. Do you remember before the children of Israel uh, came out of Egypt? Uh, the death angel was sent as the final plague, and God told the children of Israel, he said, slaughter a, a, a lamb without blemish, and put the blood on the mantle and the doorpost of your house, and the death angel will then pass over your house, and you will be spared. So, two pictures really that are involved here with this name or designation, the Lamb of God. One is the perfect sinlessness of our Lord. He was perfect, without blemish. He never sinned. And two, that he would give his life as a sin substitute for sinners. The lamb was given as a substitution for those that the lamb died. The, the lamb's blood was poured out for those the Lamb was saving. And that's what John the Baptist is saying about the Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying that the Lord Jesus Christ will give his life, will pour out his blood to save sinners. Isn't it interesting that we use the cross as a decorative device? 
and we put it on our walls, and we wear it around our necks, and we put it on rings, and we paint it, and all these things. But the cross was an instrument of death, where his blood was poured out. And it was poured out because of your sin. The sinless Lamb of God, nailed to a cross, shedding his blood for you, for the forgiveness of sins. You see, you could this morning say, I'm going to repent of my sin. I'm going to turn the other way. But that doesn't deal with your past sins. You got to have a method of dealing with your past sins before a holy God. And that way of dealing with your past sins is with this Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And what you need to do is look to the Lamb of God. Get your eyes off yourself and look to the Lamb of God and be saved. And trust in Him. This, this, is, the, this is the good news of the gospel. You will not be saved by your own works. If you try and add one work to the gospel, you will not be saved. But if you trust in Christ in the Lamb of God alone, you will be saved. One day, Charles Spurgeon, this is 1857, he was going to preach at the Crystal Palace in London, and he went there two days before he was supposed to preach just to get a lay of the building. It was huge. I think it sat five, 6,000 people. And he went out on the platform, and just to test the acoustics, he yelled out this verse, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And there was a sweeper up in the balcony. Spurgeon didn't even know he was there. And he heard those words, and he believed and was converted and was saved. You see, friend, I don't know how you came in this morning to this church and where you are with the Lord, but today is the day of salvation. The Lord brought you here for a reason, to see this Lamb of God who was lifted up for you, and to hear this message of this man with a leather belt and a tunic out in the wilderness proclaiming to you, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So repent. Repent of your sin. Repent of your false religion. And look to Christ. Come to Christ. Cling to Him. And you will be saved. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, A sinner does not decide for Christ. The sinner flies to Christ in utter helplessness and despair. You've despaired of all other means to save yourself. And you come to Him on your knees because you know that He is the only way that you can be saved. And I promise you, you believe in him, your sin today is washed away. You will be as white as snow. As far as the east is from the west, so is your sin from you. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Heavenly Father, we look to Christ, this Lamb of God, this glorious Savior that John the Baptist proclaimed 2,000 years ago. And Lord, we confess that on our own, in our own merit, and in our own works, 
that we cannot stand before you on this day of judgment that Jesus talks about. We cannot stand. But we repent of that. We repent of trying to earn our way before you by works of righteousness. We repent of our sin and our iniquity and our covetousness and our lust and and all the sin that so easily entangles us. We repent of those things, and we look to Christ, this wonderful, beautiful, pure Lamb of God, spilling His blood for sinners. And we find shelter in your nail-pierced side. Hallelujah. What a Savior. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website at capitalcommunitychurch.com.